This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is brought to you by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to Insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level. And you can try any level out for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers, meaning you, Insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge, task by task, and Book Riot Remixed, where we randomly pair a posts from across our shows to talk about whatever they want. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, which is awesome, the Epic Book Club, and more. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukaro. We're recording on Friday, June 4th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Uh, I am delightful. How are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I am a little under the weather. I have my first cold in many months, so that's a little strange. But uh, other than that, I'm doing quite well. We were talking right before this about the weirdness of being sick if you have had the ability to isolate over the past Mm -hmm. year and then suddenly encountering germs in the wild again. (laughs) It's like very strange. Yeah. Good for you for coping with that. Yeah, I I don't remember being sick in quite a while. So I woke up with a cold and a stuffy nose and a sore throat and all those different things. And then I was like, oh, man, I don't I'm so tired. I don't think I can work the rest of yesterday. Uh, So I signed off early. And I was like, did you just get weak? Like I used to work through colds all the time. But I don't know if I'm just weak now or if uh, my immune system can't handle it. It's it's very strange, but it is really beautiful. So I'm hoping I will feel better soon. So I can actually be outside this weekend, even though it's super hot here. Oh, yeah, it's I mean, I was surprised by the heat outside, which Mm -hmm. it's just like, can is there any temperature at which humans are just sort of like, oh, yeah, this is nice. (laughs) Like 75 is like the temperature. I guess between 70 and 75. But then I don't understand how we evolved. Whatever. It's fine. Anyway. um, Yeah, weather's going along. I feel like how is your reading going? You know, I read a lot of library books in May, um, mostly science fiction. (laughs) So... Yeah, I hadn't read a lot of library books for most of the year, and then I checked out a bunch of sci-fi. I read the whole Murderbot series. <gasps> yes. So good. It's so, so good. good. So good. And another one called The Space Between Worlds, which is another sci-fi futuristic kind of thing. Yeah, and I, it was it was fun to, to dive back into that stuff that I haven't read in a while, but um, I'm hoping to get back to nonfiction this month. How about you? Well, first of all, I know we have a mutual friend who loved The Space Between Worlds. Mm-hmm. Did you really like it? I did. It was really good. It's a very good futuristic book that the um, 
premise is that there are multiple worlds and people can travel between them, but you can only travel to worlds where the version of yourself on that world doesn't exist anymore or has died. And so there's a lot in the book about like race and class because a lot of the people who can travel between worlds from Earth one to the other ones are people who come from like impoverished backgrounds because they're also impoverished on other planets and so they die earlier. And so the main character is this young woman who has died on like hundreds of other planets. And so there's just a lot of really interesting stuff. It was very good and also just a great story. Wow. I did not know that that was the premise. That sounds really good. It is. Yeah. Dang. I found like as I get older and the world becomes more and more what it is, I have been increasingly drawn to sci-fi fantasy. So <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's I totally get focusing on that. I feel like my reading has been a little bit piecemeal, mm-hmm. but also been finishing some things that I am proud of. Although as I say that, I'm like, what did I read that I'm proud of? <laughs> I don't know why that's like the thought right there. Um, you know when you like finally finish something that you've been working on for like a while? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, okay, I can like check that one off the list. I feel like that's kind of where I am. I just read Detransition Baby, which was really good. Um, oh, yeah. Even though I went on like a mini rant on Twitter about uh, her writing about Chicago. <laughs> <'Cause> I <laughs> was very insulted. But um, it was it was really good, really interesting. I did really like Ninth House, which I taught. I, I didn't read a lot in May. I read, I read a lot of fiction and I read bits of nonfiction or like, you know, stuff for the podcast, but not mm-hmm. like in terms of my personal reading. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of been like a little on hold, which is fine. Mm-hmm. It's it's nice out and we're going outside. That's true. That's true. And with that, let's talk about our first sponsor, which is Emporia State University School of Library and Information Management. Libraries are so important. So... Masters of Library Science program at Emporia State University is an ALA-accredited program that offers you the flexibility of online classes while also giving you a community of peers to build your professional network, which is very important. Through a combination of instruction, students are able to form deep connections to the coursework, professors, other students, and practicing professionals in libraries. ESU offers a quick and affordable way to earn your MLS, that is, again, Master's of Library Science, with most students completing their degree in two years, even while working a full-time job. So to learn more, visit their website at www.emporia.edu slash S-L-I-M. Excellent. All right, so with that, we will jump into our normal first segment, which is nonfiction in the news. Uh, And we just have one story to share this week. Yeah, so our story is from the New York Times. Uh, Elizabeth A. Harris wrote about Roxanne Gay has started a publishing imprint with Grove Atlantic, which is really exciting. It's called, appropriately enough, Roxanne Gay Books. So (laughs) I feel like just kind of says it. Uh, It's going to focus on underrepresented fiction, nonfiction, and memoir writers uh, with or without agents, which I thought was really interesting because you hear a lot, right, that like you have to have an agent. Um, in order to get published. So focusing on these like more underrepresented voices, maybe people who don't have like the connections to get an agent. I think that's really awesome. Yes, I agree. So Roxane Gay, it says in the article, she previously founded Tiny Hardcore Press in 2011 and published like 25 to 50 copies of each title along with like, you know, obviously ebooks where you have, let's say, unlimited copies, but like hard copies. It's a very small run. So starting this new thing with this larger publisher, I think is really exciting. And I'm interested to see 
what their kind of like first picks are for that imprint. Yeah, for sure. The article also mentions that Grove is one of the larger independent publishers in the United States. And so I think that's really cool, too, that they're not part of like the big five publishing industry. And so I think maybe they have potentially like a little more flexibility or opportunity maybe to do books that are not agented or that are coming from voices that aren't traditionally part of publishing. So I think that's a really cool opportunity as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Congratulations to Roxanne Gay. (laughs) Yes, exactly. All right. uh, So with that, we'll jump into this week's new nonfiction, which is books that are out now or coming out soon that we are excited to tell you about. So uh, my first pick is one that has been getting a lot of buzz this year. And I can uh, tell you that I I think I understand why after reading part of it. So uh, the book is called Somebody's Daughter, a Memoir by Ashley C. Ford. And it came out June 1st from Flatiron Books. And this is a memoir about Ashley C. Ford's childhood that is largely defined by the absence of her father, who is incarcerated. But for much of her childhood, she actually doesn't know why. So she grew up in the Midwest primarily. Um, the book is a lot about her um, childhood, growing up um, not particularly well off um, with her single mother and her grandmother and her kind of extended family through her adolescence and some of her experiences there. And her father, she has a difficult relationship with her mother. And so through a lot of her childhood, she feels the absence of her father really strongly because of kind of the ways that they butt heads all the time. And she's a black kid in Indiana. And so there's a lot about race and her community that comes up in the early parts of the memoir. And so it's not until later in her life that she finally is able to actually connect with her father. She's able, she learns from her grandmother, I think, why he was incarcerated, what happened. And then um, after he gets, and then starts to kind of build a relationship with him, even though he's in prison. And so this memoir is really interesting to me because it's been on a ton of book lists and I can see why the writing is really good. Um, It's an interesting story and it's very well told, but it's also like, you know how memoirs, like sometimes memoirs are people that like have these really bizarre experiences or they like do something really out of the ordinary or kind of amazing. And then they write a memoir and you get to kind of travel along and understand this like experience that you would never have. And this memoir is like not that. It is just the story of a person who is living a life that isn't really outside of what a lot of other people will have lived or experienced, but it's just really well told. There's no gimmicks. There's not like extra reporting or anything like that. It's just like a straight memoir. And I I don't know why that feels so like revolutionary to me for some reason, but something about it, I just was like, wow, I'm so surprised by just how straightforward this book is. But like in a good way, she brings you into her experiences in a really effective way. She really is good at kind of capturing what she knew at the time and what she understood at the time and what she was feeling, but then also giving some context for how she sees it now and like what that lesson meant to her later. And so it's just a really good story that's really well written and well told. So I recommend it. Somebody's Daughter, a memoir by Ashley C. Ford. That sounds really good. And yeah, this has been giving a ton of buzz. So Mm -hmm. it's good to hear more about it, just in terms of details. You know what I was randomly reminded of when you were talking about that, like (laughs) about like the way that memoirs usually are, was Guy Branham's memoir, which is definitely about his like stand-up career and also um, like coming out experience and all this. And again, I don't, maybe it was just because it's like, oh yeah, it's a memoir, just talking about their life. But are you have you seen the show Hacks at all on HBO? Not yet. Mm-mm. Okay, it's like pretty clearly modeled after the life of Joan Rivers, and it's so good. And I just, <laughs> I just needed to like 
somehow like talk about that real quick because i was no because guy Branham talks about working for joan rivers in this memoir and i've been watching the show and it's really good i'm so sorry i know that it's like a pivot (laughs) (laughs) for some reason i appreciate the pivot at the end i was like you know what I need to talk about? How good Hacks is. No, but somebody's daughter, that's I also that's another one where I really like the cover. <laughs> you yes. know, it's always like we gotta talk about a good cover. That one's got one. So, it is. Yeah. Great job. Also, this idea of having this just like uh oh, it sounds so like, I don't know, something to say like a life well told. But mm-hmm. um to have that just all like to read that kind of experience and be like, how does someone do that well, I think is also just like a lesson for writers. And that, you know what I mean? Like, it could be like one of those books you read to be like, this is how you do this mm-hmm. based on how you talked about it. So that's great. And everyone should watch Hacks and then let's all talk about <laughs> it on Twitter. Okay. My next book is Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth by Brian Burrow, Chris Tomlinson, and Jason Stanford. Yes, that is a lot of dude names. I normally don't do this. However, I I've like over my teenagedom to adult life gotten more and more interested in American history, specifically 19th century American history, specifically the West. <laughs> Like, I mean, I'm also interested in the East Coast for sure, because that's where all the, like a lot of um, like women's suffrage work was being done and all this stuff. But when I saw this book come out and talking about like, let's look into the history of the Alamo, let's see what popular conceptions are and what actually happened according to, you know, what we can tell. I was like, amazing. The cover also, it's got a picture of the Alamo with like this almost like sharpie like it looks like like a like a really thick red sharpie wrote like forget the alamo over it so it's like a provocative cover um especially for people who are invested in this myth so i think that the popular vision of the alamo right is like davy crockett and this band of rebels go down in this blaze of glory against santa Ana and like protect america and like that's kind of the broad strokes of what i understood growing up um i visited it when i was like seven and my only memory is that it was like a big dusty building <laughs> but reading this uh i have been shocked multiple times basically about how much we have gotten wrong about this like in popular culture it's basically a uh they talk about it as a creation myth for texas and uh because originally right like at the time of the battle for the alamo texas was part of mexico and you know like trying to there was this whole battle about like does it get annexed by the u.s you know like what's gonna happen and santana isn't like really like a hero like he did some really horrible things but also The reason it becomes clear that Stephen Austin pushed into Texas and wanted to have settlers there and work with Mexico was because they wanted to establish slavery there in order to grow cotton because it was very profitable. And that's like from his letters. Like we have primary sources where he's just like, yes, we want to do this because we want slavery. So that alone was surprising because they didn't know any of that. And then they were really worried because Mexico, which was uh, in flux because they had had a revolution, but they banned slavery. And so I, which I also was like very surprised by, I didn't know anything about um, that period in Mexican history, but they were basically like, no white settlers, you can't own uh, people. And they were, and so then the Alamo is partially like them being like, well, we want to, so we're going to fight you. Like, it's horrifying. and. 
the fact that these three uh, Texas writers, like they've written about like the history of Texas before and they decided to get really into this. This, again, like by some deeply cherished thing, they talk at the beginning about how Sting, I think, has the largest collection of Alamo. Or is it Phil Collins? Is it Sting or Phil Collins? Either one of those is weird. Doesn't matter which one. <laughs> um, and so they were like donating them to so to create a museum because they think it, it's all very like a thing. So anyway, the book is extremely good, really interesting. Again, one of those things that just like explodes your like casually picked up from pop culture ideas. And I just I, I have been loving it. So again, it is Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth by Brian Burrow, Chris Tomlinson and Jason Stanford. So uh, my TV pivot related to the Alamo, if that's what we're going to do this week, yes. is uh, the TV show Timeless, which <gasps> is <laughs> so good. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, and they have an episode where they go back to the Alamo and then have to, like, escape from the Alamo, uh, even though, like, I think nobody did. Uh, I love that show, and I remember the episode, and that's pretty much all I know. <laughs> you know okay, I loved that show. I stopped watching before it ended, but I didn't like that they were trying to force a romance between the main guy and girl because mm -hmm. I didn't think they had any chemistry. Oh. So that – oh, did you like them? I did like them, but... Oh, I take it all back. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I'm just a sucker for a romance, and I want to see one on, like, basically every TV show, even when it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Understandable. But yeah, that show is great. Go Timeless. Excellent. Good pick. So my second pick is called Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World by Eleanor Cleghorn, uh, which came out, or is coming out June 8th from Dutton. And this book is a history of women's health looking at kind of like the earliest medicine and ideas about illness in women to current ideas or current research and stuff on hormones and autoimmune diseases, all in this like big sweeping narrative. So kind of the, um, I guess jumping off point for the book is that 10 years ago, the author was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease after she went through this very long period of being told that her symptoms were she might be pregnant or it might be psychosomatic or like just didn't have any really – she felt like she wasn't taken seriously by doctors, which is an experience that I know like many women have had and many women have written memoirs about, especially when those um, diagnoses end up being quite serious after they're ignored. So um, this book is kind of partially about that and that's what prompted her to, I think, start her research. And so this is a book about how medicine has largely in many ways failed women by treating bodies as other, that like women's bodies are somehow so different from men's bodies that they can't be diagnosed or treated in the same way. She also gets at the um, history of the relationship between women and medicine. So everything from um, this idea in ancient Greece that women had a wandering womb to uh, witch trials, the whole idea of hysteria as a diagnosis that women would get, and that would be used to diagnose all sorts of actual diseases and just call it hysteria. Um, and then, like I said, some of the more recent things we're learning about autoimmunity, hormones, menstruation, menopause, and conditions like endometriosis, and how those are finally starting to be better understood so that women can be treated more effectively by doctors. So the book is a history, but it's also got a mix kind of of character studies and case histories so that you can get some like really clear examples of how these diagnoses and how these relationships have changed over time. And part of what I was interested in this one is that I, in the last, you know, since we've been doing the podcast or since I've been blogging over the last like, I don't know, five or 10 years, 
I've, there's been quite a few memoirs, I think, of women writing about misdiagnoses and about their medical experiences not being taken seriously and what they learned through those experiences. But I haven't seen one that's more of a researched, more straight nonfiction take on that medical history. So I was interested in this book kind of filling that gap, although it does have some memoir components, really just being kind of a straight nonfiction book looking at the history of women in medicine. So that's why I was interested in that. I think it's really interesting so far. So that is Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World by Eleanor Cleghorn. Uh, what would be a TV pairing for that? The like Handmaid's Tale? No? <laughs> probably. <laughs> that would probably work, yeah. You know what I've been uh, like really slowly reading is The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness by Anne Boyer, uh, mm. which won the 2020 Pulitzer in general yeah. nonfiction. It's really hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like... Uh, meaning, like, from a, I read a couple of pages and I'm, like, overwhelmed with sadness. Mm-hmm. But she also writes in this, I guess, I guess she didn't have a, an experience necessarily of being misdiagnosed. It was more about coming to terms with it. But regardless, that one popped up in my brain while you were uh, talking. Good comparison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I call those things, I tend to think of it as, as like, lily pads, like frogs on lily pads. Ah. So you, like... You mentally like hop from one thing to the another, to another, and then you end up like five lily pads away, and you're like, "Wait, how did I, <laughs> how did I get here?" <laughs> but no, I feel like that—that's a pretty clear line. But anyway, important issue, and yeah, maybe Handmaid's Tale. I think I was also thinking of the the I think it's called the it's not called the vibrator play, is it? Where it was like women were diagnosed with hysteria, and they talk about the invention of the vibrator. Oh, I don't know, but that sounds like it would be related for sure. There's something about Maggie Gyllenhaal was in the movie, and there's something about like maybe a room in the title. Oh well, someone find that out. <laughs> okay, next book is Black Snake, Standing Rock, the Dakota Access Pipeline, and Environmental Justice by Catherine Wiltenberg Todris. This is out June first from Bison Books. So, gosh, this <laughs> just thinking about the Dakota Access Pipeline and Standing Rock makes me like want to like stand and stare into the middle distance because. <laughs> It feels like a million years ago, and Mm -hmm. it was four and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And so much has happened in that time. Um, So, yeah, side effect of of picking this book, which I think is important. And if you are interested in kind of a deeper look into what was going on, I think this is really good for that. So what was the initial situation? It was the Dakota Access Pipeline was being built to transport American oil from in North Dakota, mostly from the Bakken oil fields to uh, markets across the country. So they were like, oh, well, we need to, you know, increase uh, American output of oil so we don't need to depend on foreign markets. And Native activists named this pipeline the Black Snake, which was referring to this ancient prophecy about a terrible snake that would one day devour the earth. And so when they started building it, activists rallied near the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota to oppose it. And then, of course, people like flooded in from around the world. And they – do you remember when they won that that stay? And it was like really great mm-hmm. and everyone was happy and then it got rever- – I just – oh, gosh. See, thinking about this topic, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, the time. So they, they did temporarily get a stay on it, but then the government under the previous president – ordered it to move forward. And so oil started moving through the pipeline June 1st, 2017. The camps were called water protector camps. 
and they had more than 300 tribes, which was potentially the largest Native alliance in U.S. history. There were people working for the oil companies, or I don't know who they were working for, but basically people who were anti the stoppage of the pipeline. Blasting people with water cannons and freezing temperatures, there was a whole lot of horrible stuff going on. So what this book is, is the story of four leaders in the fight against the pipelines. They are LaDonna Aller, Jocelyn Charger, Lisa DeVille, and Candy White. And their background, how they came to this fight, it also talks about, um, she starts out sort of giving a really vivid description of what life was like before oil companies came in. And then there's this thing about, she talks about having all of these oil wells going and they have this like uh, methane that discharges as part of the process. It comes up out of the earth. So you're like standing in what used to be like, you know, farmland, <laughs> like where animals mm. would graze. And you have at night, especially these like just jets of fire coming out of the earth. And like, Ugh. this is the product. So it just gets really into the background and then outcome of just like what happened, which I have found really informative and useful for just having like, uh, well, an informed opinion. Uh, so this is also the story of Native nations combating environmental injustice, longtime discrimination, and rebuilding their communities, and the new generation of environmental activists who were really motivated by Standing Rock. So again, that is Black Snake, Standing Rock, the Dakota Access Pipeline, and Environmental Justice by Catherine Wiltenberg Todras. That sounds really fascinating. And I think I agree with you, like thinking back, like that feels so long ago, but it I think it's just long enough that this book has like enough perspective to be able to like look back on look back on what happened with a little bit less like just a little bit of distance but not so much distance that we'd have no like we don't remember what it felt like to be watching this does that make sense oh that's a good point yeah Mm -hmm. that's like what we've been talking about with like the last presidential administration where it's like you know there's not been enough time we're still Mm -hmm. like in the midst of things happening so you can't like have a any kind of nonfiction analysis with any Mm -hmm. sort of With any distance, yeah. So, no, I think you're right that that's the right amount of time. Yeah, it's, like, a perfect amount of time to, like, still remember, like, viscerally everything that happened, but, like, have some perspective on it. So, yeah, great pick. Good good one. We have a couple of other quick mentions because June was just – is just a bananas month for new titles. So I have two other ones that I want to just mention real quick. Um, The first one is called The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America by Carol Anderson. Uh, And Carol Anderson is an amazing author. She's done a bunch of really great books. Um, Her last one that I really liked was about voting rights and like the history of voting rights uh, in the United States and the the racist history of voting uh, suppression legislation. And so um, this book is about the Second Amendment and how, quote, how it was designed and how it has consistently been constructed to keep African-American Americans powerless and vulnerable. So it is a lens into the citizenship, rights, and human rights of African Americans. So I think that is a, a fascinating lens to look at the Second Amendment, which I think we talk about a lot, but don't always truly like think about. So that one looks really good, and I'm excited about it. And then the second one I have a quick mention is called The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease by Daisy Hernandez. And I have to admit, this one was not on my radar until I saw an article that she wrote for LitHub that was about books that combine journalism and memoir. And I was like, oh, I love books that combine journalism and memoir. And I was like, why didn't I know about this book? And so this one is part memoir. So she's writing about 
Uh, she grew up in a New Jersey factory town in the new 1980s, um, and she grew up believing that her aunt, uh, who died, became ill because she ate an apple. Um, nobody in her family understood infectious diseases. And then later in her life, she discovered that actually her aunt died of something called Chagas, which is a rare and devastating illness that affects the heart and digestive system. So um, she does some research about this disease uh, called the kissing bug virus and how it threatens people, particularly in the Latinx community. And I just think that sounds sad and also fascinating. So those are my two quick mentions. Oh, you went way more into yours than I'm going to. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I'm just going to read some titles. Uh, yeah, my two quick mentions are, uh, first, Ola Poppy, How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons by John Paul Brammer. I saw this in the queer nonfiction section of my local bookstore yesterday. It looks really good. And then, as a woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned by Paula Stone Williams which is another kind of look at gender and how people treat you based on, you know, how you present yourself. And I think I, I mentioned this in the True Story newsletter and I paired it with Amateur, which is about a trans man kind of talking about the change in how he's treated after he, you know, sort of starts appearing in a more masculine way and how people start listening to him more and all this. So like, it's kind of the opposite in As a Woman by Paula Stone mm -hmm. Williams. So I thought that was really interesting. Our second sponsor is Harper Perennial and the First Ten Years by Joseph Fink and Meg Bashweiner. This is a sometimes hilarious, occasionally heartbreaking, and always entertaining joint memoir by Joseph Fink, co-creator of Welcome to Night Vale, and his wife, writer and performer Meg Bashweiner, chronicling the first ten years of their relationship from both sides. Well, that's fun. In this candid, soul-bearing memoir, Joseph and Meg recount their first 10 years together, each telling their story as they remember it without having consulted <laughs> the other. Uh, this is perfect for fans of New York Times' modern love column. So that is the first 10 years. Thank you for sponsoring. Did you ever see the movie He Said, She Said? No. It's got Elizabeth Perkins, who I love, and Kevin Bacon, and they each tell the story of their relationship, and it's so good. <laughs> I just yeah. really like it. I think this sounds fascinating, like, mm -hmm. that we each perceive our stories differently um, and how the same story – yeah, that just sounds like a fascinating way to do a memoir, especially not consulting each other before doing it to, like, see how those stories are the same or different. Oh, exactly. Oh, and I told you that when I saw that he's the co-creator of Welcome to Night Vale and I was going to talk about DashCon real quick, the extremely failed Tumblr-adjacent convention uh, from <laughs> Illinois – and which had the whole, um, you know, you get an extra hour in the ball pit meme that came across the, the internet. <laughs> oh, so good. Anyway, my only point on that is that Welcome to Night Vale was supposed to be a guest. And then because of the extraordinary chaos and lack of anything at the convention, they walked out. And that's because I didn't listen to Welcome to Night Vale. That's my main association with them <laughs> is that they left DashCon because of how terribly DashCon was managed. Anyway... Let's talk about our weekly theme. Yes, our weekly theme this week is for Pride Month, LGBTQ plus reads. So we've got kind of a range, but I wanted to first mention that uh, the Lambda Literary Awards were announced on June 1st. That's an annual award for LGBTQIA uh, books in various categories. There's a lot of great nonfiction on the list, um, quite a few that I had never heard of before. So we'll just read the winners really fast. These are just the nonfiction winners. We'll link to an article that has the other winners in it. But uh, tra for transgender nonfiction, the winner was The Black Trans Prayer Book by J. Mace III and Dana Figueroa Eady. 
for LGBTQ nonfiction, it was The Lonely Letters by Ashton T. Crawley. For bisexual nonfiction, it was Wow, No Thank You by Samantha Irby, which we have loved before. For lesbian memoir slash biography, it was My Biography of Carson McCullers by Jen Chapland. For gay memoir biography, A Dutiful Boy, A Memoir of a Gay Muslim's Journey to Acceptance by Mozin Zaidi. And for LGBTQ studies, uh, Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World by Zakia Aman Johnson. So I will link to the full article, but that's a great place to look if you're looking for some additional LGBTQ reads. All right, so with that, we'll jump into our picks. So my first pick is called Gender, A Graphic Guide by Meg John Barker and Jules Sheely. Uh, it came out in 2020 from Icon Books. And uh, so these two are also the authors of Queer, A Graphic History, which is one that I also considered, but they didn't have it available at my library. So I went with Gender instead, but I think they're both awesome. And so Gender, A Graphic Guide, looks at how gender and ideas about gender have changed over time. And so this is a really... I think, brief but comprehensive look at ideas around gender. So they look at everything from shifting ideas about masculinity and femininity to um, non-binary, trans, and fluid genders. And then they look at the intersection of experiences about gender with race, sexuality, class, disability, and all many other things. So what I really like about this one is that it is really comprehensive but very fast-moving. So for the section that's sort of about masculinity, they talk about the masculinity pyramid and how different masculine identities are kind of subordinate to others. They look at toxic masculinity. They look at fragile masculinity. And then they look at how masculinity is connected to violence and shame. They look at masculinity in the gay community, masculinity in other areas. And it's just really like a lot of stuff packed into a very few number of pages. Um and then it looks at kind of discussions we're having currently about gender and misunderstandings people have about gender and then how we can approach gender identity and gender experiences differently. So it reminds me, like, for some reason of Scott McCloud. He did Understanding Comics, and so he used comics as a way to explain comics. This one feels a little bit in the same way that they're using illustrations and text to share information, although maybe that's just like a nonfiction comics thing and that I don't have a lot of references for it. But there's something about the way that text and illustrations are like working together that I really like. And I was trying to think like, what is the like the level of gender discussion in this book? And I think it's maybe like advanced beginner to middle level stuff, but it never gets super deep into any of the things. Like it's really giving you like a sampler of different ideas about gender in a very informative and fast-moving way. So I really like that. It's very informative. There's a lot there. Um, a lot of stuff that I like didn't know or hadn't really thought about yet. So it's really good. So that is Gender, A Graphic Guide by Meg John Barker and Jules Sheely. Yeah, that sounds really good. Is it true? Because I've like kind of like looked at queer, um, a graphic history. Like, is it pretty like academic-ish? Academic-ish? That's a word, yeah. Yeah, I think it leans more academic or just like more in straight informative. Like there's not a lot of like personal stuff in there, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense with like the things I've seen from it when I like kind of glanced through it to be like, do I want to cover this? And um, but hearing that it's also like I knew it was short, but also like kind of fast moving. That is nice. Mm -hmm. I love fast moving stuff. Agreed. Okay, so. My pick, uh, first pick, is We Have Always Been Here, a queer Muslim memoir by Samra Habib. First of all, titles like We Have Always Been Here make me emotional like every time. <laughs> like, it's this idea of um, when I was first coming out, you know, this idea of establishing queer people throughout history, which at the time, like now, you know, there were like 5 million books being like 25 mm -hmm. queer people. That did not exist even like 10 years ago. So 
identifying these people or being like, no, this has always existed was very important to me. So yeah, people being like, no, we've always been here is great. So Samar Habib uh, grew up in Pakistan as an Ahmadi Muslim, which I did not know what the difference was there. So this is from Wikipedia. I do not have a background in Muslim studies. But it says, uh, what essentially distinguishes Ahmadi Muslims from other uh, Muslims is their belief in Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the founder of the movement, as both the promised Mahdi, which is defines as guided one, and Messiah foretold by Muhammad to appear in the ed- end times. So because of being an Ahmadi Muslim, they were facing, her family was facing threats from Islamic extremists because they thought that this like kind of smaller sect was blasphemous. So she kind of was taught by her parents to sort of hide who she was in that way alone, right? So then they moved to Canada as refugees, and she deals with bullying and racism and this arranged marriage where they were talking to her at 14 and her husband basic or husband-to-be basically said that there, yes, he would allow that there were instances where uh, abusing his wife would basically be allowed. Like, there would be, like, justification for it. So she decided not to do that (laughs) and um, kind of builds her own life. And uh, she finds an LGBTQ-centered mosque, discovers, you know, before that obviously discovers her, like, queer sexuality and created a queer Muslim portrait project and now, like, speaks around the world. It's just... I did not know until really recently. This book came out in 2019, and I don't remember it coming out, but I was really psyched to find it. So she has had a, a let's let's say again, a storied life, just to coin a phrase. And so <laughs> if, if interested, uh, it is, again, We Have Always Been Here, a queer Muslim memoir by Samra Habib. I'm really glad you talked about this one. It was on my list of ones I was thinking about, too. Because, um, yeah, I just... She's a really good writer, and I like that she is kind of pulling a lot of different experiences together to talk about her her journey and her life and her understanding of her sexuality through her life. So, yeah, good pick. Yay. Um, all right, so my second pick is called uh, Becoming Nicole, The Transformation of an American Family by Amy Alice Nutt. Uh, and this book came out in 2015, so it's a little bit older, but it is about a family in Maine, <laughs> the Maine's family, who um, they adopt identical twin boys when they're seven years old, or th- they adopt the boys as infants. And then as the boys are growing up, um, one of them, Wyatt and Jonas, Wyatt starts to insist that he is is really a girl. He should be a girl. And so over the years that followed, this kind of these declarations by their son, they come to understand that really Wyatt is a girl. And so they become some of, I think, the earliest families being activists for transgender kids. And so uh, this book is their story about how Wyatt transitioned to a girl named Nicole and what that meant for the family. And the they led a lawsuit against their children's school because they wouldn't let Nicole use the girls' bathroom. And they're, I think, one of the earlier families to lead one of those lawsuits. And so it's about their family and really about like what happened to their family, like how they were able to start to understand gender in a new way, thanks to Nicole, and how Nicole learned to advocate for herself. And it's just a really, really good story. Um, and so the author is a Pulitzer Prize, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And so she spent about four years reporting this story. It came out when the twins were teenagers, I think 18. 
And so she had a lot of time to spend with the family to really understand all of their different perspectives, because particularly at the time that they were trying to help Nicole, like, and advocate for her, this was just not a thing that a lot of families were experiencing. And even today, like, transgender issues are still so complicated and so not supported in a lot of ways. And so um, there's just a lot there and about the their parents and how they both separately had to sort of come to understand Nicole and what her gender and experience meant for their family. So I think it's really fascinating and just a good, like, it's such a difficult thing and it's difficult to understand. And so I think like giving voice to Nicole and Jonas and their parents and really letting them all kind of share their experiences in this book is really important. So um, in addition to being that family story, she does a lot of good reporting about what we what we understand about gender and when it is established in our brains and what science and uh, society are saying and kind of understanding. So it's a little bit older. So I think things have maybe changed in some of those ways, but I still think it's a really good pick. So that is Becoming Nicole, The Transformation of an American Family by Amy Ellis Nutt. Oh, that does sound really good. I think that was on like one of the ebook sale things recently. So I was like looking at it, but uh, I've been buying too many of those. So I was like, <laughs> never mind. But no, that sounds great. I thought it had been written by by her mom, but you're saying it's this extremely good reporter. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, that's even. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> so I have kind of a, a adjacent book to that, mm-hmm. which is My Sister, How One Sibling's Transition Changed Us Both by Marisol Leva and Selenis Leva. Selenis Leva was on Orange is the New Black. She played, I only saw like seasons one and two, I think, but she was the the cook in the kitchen. Do you remember? Mm, I think so, yeah. Yeah, she's really good. And I mean, I, like, like that whole cast is, but like, so she wrote this book. It came out last year. I think it was honestly, because I was looking through her Instagram. I think it came out like the week after COVID started. So that's another reason I want to, like, bump this (laughs) as a Mm -hmm. title, um, because books that came out during that month is just so unfair. But also, it's really good. If you have – I talked about having a soft spot for this previous book with about, like, people always being here. I also have one for sibling relationships Mm -hmm. and – the book, my sister, it's it alternates Selena's uh, writing her her sort of narrative of growing up with her sister, and then Marisol like her perspective. Which so the way that this started was Selena's was I think like eight years older, and her family brought in this foster baby, which at the time everyone was like, you know, oh, this is like your like little brother now, and as she kind of got older, and as um, Marisol got older they she like selena's could tell like marisol like wasn't happy and was just really struggling and like not like her other brothers and so there's like that perspective and then you go to marisol's chapter and she's kind of like this is what was happening like this you know this is i like the interactions i had with my biological parents um this is what i was doing when selena's was like at high school right i was like trying on her clothes and like trying on her shoes and like trying to hide the fact that like at christmas i really wanted a barbie and i like got all this boy stuff and it's just I think it's really interesting from this idea of not only the sibling dynamic and like them kind of watching the other one and seeing their experience, but also this idea that you can grow up in the same family and have such a different experience in it Mm -hmm. from even just your siblings. 
I would say almost regardless of age difference, like eight years is a good gap. But I think every I have three siblings. I think every one of us had a very different Mm -hmm. um, experience growing up. So I'm really I'm like halfway through. I'm loving it. It's like really again, it's just like hitting that thing of like, oh, siblings and they love each other so much. And you can tell that like Selena's just like adores Marisol and Marisol is like very upfront about like Selena's is my favorite sibling, (laughs) which was like, that's a that's a bold move. considering you have a bunch of other siblings. But um, it's just great. So again, uh, My Sister, How One Sibling's Transition Changed Us Both by Marisol Leva and Selena Leva. Oh, that's a really good pick too. Yeah. Lots of like dual stories. I like that. I hope that's a thing that happens more as people like sharing the telling of a story. Yeah. So you can see all those different perspectives. Awesome. So those are just a few uh, LGBTQ plus reads for Pride Month. There are many, many more. But those are just some new ones we wanted to mention. So we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading right now. I am reading a couple that I wanted to mention. Um, The first one is Fiction Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. That just came out this week and it is one of like my most anticipated books of the summer because I love Taylor Jenkins Reid previous books, Daisy Jones and the Six. And she also wrote The Seven and a Half Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, um, which is really good. So this one is just like a family of siblings on the coast getting ready for a party and it's really good so far. But then the nonfiction one I wanted to mention is called Lightning Flowers, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life by Catherine Standifer. Uh, and this is, is um, part member, part reporting about um, after she is uh, gets a medical diagnosis that requires her to have a defibrillator, she starts to get curious and then traces all of the materials that make that device back through the supply chain to kind of explore, like, what is the actual cost of medicine and medical devices, uh, which I think just sounds, like, fascinating for so many reasons. So that was an impulse buy when I was at the bookstore, but it looks great. So those are my two reads right now. Those sound really good. Um, I finally, again, got Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari Ah. from the library. Uh, I got it a long time ago and started it. And then I think it was like three or four years ago because I wasn't, maybe more. Whenever it came out, because I was still eating meat, I think. And there are sections that are so like, this is why eating meat is like, well, in certain ways, right? Like, like, let's say like mass produced Mm -hmm. meat uh, is horrible (laughs) for the animals. And it was really impactful. Like, it stayed in my brain. And so I've been really wanting to finish it. So I'm psyched to eventually finish Sapiens. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a minute, we would love it if you would take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then you can follow the podcast while you're there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>